morning, everybody. My name is Sharad Agarwal. I'm the CEO of Cybergear and the founder of OnlyWebinars.com. Uh, last month, I was fortunate to hear uh, James speak at a live event. It was at the Women Leadership Summit. And uh, I was, you know, just blown by the presentation that he gave. It was amazing to say the least. And uh, for those who don't already know James, uh, he's an Olympic coach. He's a successful CEO. And he's also an award-winning journalist. Uh, he wears a lot of hats. And I can assure you, uh, in my opinion, at least, uh, he's a champion. So uh, today's topic is very, very interesting. Making the leap from winner to champion. And uh, I'm going to hand it over to James to take this forward and help us all become champions in business or in our game or actually in life. So good morning and welcome, James. Uh, over to you. Okay, thank you very much and uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for, for giving us uh, an hour of your precious time. We're going to talk about a subject that's very near and dear to my heart and, and uh, probably uh, one of my more favorite topics to study and learn about. And it's this idea of making the leap from winner to champion. Now, many folks believe that those two words are interchangeable. They say a uh, winner's a champion and a champion is a winner. I hope that uh, at the end of this hour, you'll agree with me that they're two uh, very different things. So let's get started on our our little journey here. And so the first thing we should start with just very quickly about myself. So you know that how I'm coming at this. Uh, I'm a big believer in the concept of serendipity, which is uh, you don't really know where your life's going to go. And that there's an old joke that you'll hear, which is how do you make God laugh? Have a plan. And uh, my life is very much a, a journey of serendipity. Uh, when I was studying, I studied a double major in child psychology and exercise physiology. I was a track and field coach to inner city kids in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. I loved coaching. I loved teaching. And my dream at that point was just to coach and teach and make no money for the rest of my life. And I would be completely happy. And my life changed uh, because I was working, uh, I had started my own company on the side to help pay for school. Uh, and I was doing fitness consulting with companies. And this was 1983, 1984, the beginning of this whole fitness craze uh, in, in the United States. And, and companies were starting to look at fitness as a means to take care of their employees. And, and a belief was arising that a healthy employee is a good employee. And I was teaching this program uh, to Procter & Gamble in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio in the US, which happens to be the headquarters city of Procter & Gamble. And I would, I would do fitness testing on these executives. I was hired by P&G as a consultant. Uh, they were paying me $5 an hour and I was very happy with $5 an hour. And my life changed one day when I was testing a man with this device. Now, this device is called a skinfold caliper, and this is the easy way to measure body fat. You go around the body and you take different folds of fat. You measure the thickness of the fat in different parts of the body and you put it into an algorithm. So this little device changed the rest of my life. And I'm measuring this guy's body fat and he was talking to me. He was a bit nervous and he says to me, you should do what I do. And I, and I said, what do you do? For me, he was just an executive. And he said, I'm in brand management. And I said, what is brand management? And he explained it to me and I liked what I heard. And so he helped me kind of apply and I did a CV and I, I put in an application with P&G and they, I took some tests and lo and behold, I passed the test. So I did a, an interview. I did well in the interview. So then I did a full panel interview where you interview with three people. I thought I did really well, um, but Lo and behold, uh, after a couple of days, I get a letter in the mail and I rip it open. I'm all excited. You know, remember this is 1984. You don't, there's no email, there's no SMS, there's no portal. You wait for a letter to be delivered to your house. And I get this letter and I rip it open. And it's one of these classic corporate letters where 
you know, paragraph one says, uh, we loved meeting you. You're so interesting. All your coaching and sports stories and all of that. Uh, and, and they're buttering me up. And then paragraph two, they tell me the full truth, which is we don't really see a good fit. So we wish you the best of luck for the rest of your life. And so that was it. I was rejected. Now, I was raised in a different world. I was raised in a world you can fight anything and that you get what you fight for. And so I was kind of upset. I thought I was a good fit. And so I went to the library and I figured out who the head of HR was in P&G. It was a guy named Sam Pruitt. And so I write this guy a letter, this nasty letter, dear Mr. Pruitt, you know, interviewing is not a science, it's an art and your artists are awful and I want new artists to look at me. And lo and behold, P&G was so stunned by this young guy, 21 year old guy fighting that they gave me another chance. And I interviewed with three different people. And then I got an offer to join P&G Marketing. And I started in the US and so I went from the gym to an, a marketing assistant job. Then I was promoted to assistant brand manager, then brand manager uh, and doing very well. And, and then I decided I wanted to go overseas and learn about the world. And so they sent me to Morocco and then to Poland. And, and then my first CEO assignment was running the Near East, which is actually the region I'm back running today, a region I love, which was Levant, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, I also had Israel as well uh, in, that, in that business in, in, a, in a whole unified unit. Uh, and then I was back to Poland and Baltics and then uh, I, I ran the paper business in Europe and then I went to the Philippines and then I left P&G after 25 years. I went to Coke, I was the CEO in West Africa based in Lagos, Nigeria. I did that a couple of years and back to the Philippines and then I'm currently in my present job as the CEO of Fine Hygienic Holding. And that's kind of the story. And, and I never have left the field of sports. Uh, I continue to coach uh, from the U.S. Junior National Team to various Olympians in different countries. When I would move to a, a developing market, you know, say like a Nigeria or a Philippines where they couldn't afford coaches, I would coach for free and help the athletes and, and take some of their athletes to the Olympic Games as a believer that sports can build not only individuals, but nations. And it's a form of nation building. And there's been studies that show that the Brazilian economy, for example, correlates very highly to how their football team does. And when the Brazilians win the World Cup, the, the consumer sentiment is so strong that it builds the economy. And you see what the Chinese did in 2008 for the Olympics, they invested 68 billion to announce China has arrived on the world stage and it was a very successful investment for China. And so I believe in sports as a nation building tool. And so, you know, I've been able to give back to countries that I lived in uh, by helping their Olympic programs, helping their national sports programs, mainly in the world of track and field. So what you're going to see here are lifting from athletes in the world, uh, examples of things. These are all athletes I've worked with. I all know personally, uh, I know very well. Uh, so I'm not just lifting examples of people. These are all people that I know, uh, you know, on a very close basis. And so without any further ado, let's get started. And the first person, let me, sorry, let me go back on this. I uh, jumped ahead for some reason. Okay, the first person we're going to learn from uh, that kind of sets the stage on this is a, a, a wonderful, amazing athlete and woman by the name of Nadia Comaneci from Romania. Now, it's showing how old I am because often when I, when I talk to groups about Nadia and I say, who knows who she is, it's never more than 10 or 20% of the hands go up. Uh, but she's considered the greatest of all time uh, female gymnast uh, up until and maybe even including uh, Simone Biles, the current uh, Olympic champion. And what made her famous was is that she was the first person to ever score a perfect 10 uh, in gymnastics in the old judging system when they would rate you on a scale of one to 10. And it was so interesting when she got her perfect 10, it showed up on the scoreboard as 1.0 because no one ever thought it was possible to get a perfect score. So the scoreboard stopped at 9.99. So when they put 10 up, it became 1.0. This happened first at the 76 Olympics in Montreal where she won five gold medals and was kind of crowned the greatest of all time. So. To, to kind of give you a little bit of context and, and 
bring us back in time. Let's take a quick look at a clip from the 76 Olympics, uh, Nadia Comaneci's first perfect 10, which was on the uneven parallel bars. Okay, so greatest of all time, won five Olympic gold medals. Uh, a number of years ago, I had Nadia come, uh, you know, and, and do a favor for me and come and speak to my team in the Philippines. And, and there will be three times in this talk, I'll say this was a life-changing moment for me, and this is going to be the first one, where you hear something that's so profound, that you learn something new that's so amazing that it it, it impacts you deeply and it changes the rest of your life. And this moment changed the rest of my life. One of my people raised her hand and she did a little talk and then there was a Q&A and they said, how did you win five Olympic gold medals? I mean, what made you win five Olympic gold medals versus somebody else who doesn't win any? And her answer was just breathtakingly great. And she said, I've observed something. There's only three kinds of people in the world. There's only three kinds of people walking the streets of Dubai or wherever you are today. There's only three kinds of people in a company. Uh, there's only three kinds of people in a gymnastics gym. And when she said that, I thought about it. And I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, in PNG, we had a three-level rating system, outstanding, strong, and unsatisfactory. Then I went to Coke, and they had a three rating system, which was about the same. Then I go to BAT, and they had a three-level system. And now in fine hygienic holding, we have a three-level system. It's always the same, outstanding, satisfactory or strong or solid, and then some kind of unsatisfactory or needs improvement or whatever. But it's always these three levels. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And she said, in a, in a gymnastics contest, here's the three kinds of people I noticed in a, in a gymnastics gym. The, let's assume the coach goes to all the athletes and says, I want you to do 10 repetitions of your routine on the uneven parallel bars. Do 10 repetitions. Now, the coach can't watch 50 people at once. So there's, a, there's an honor system here. When you say do 10, he's gotta believe that you wanna do 10, that you wanna be the best. And she said, the first kind of person, they don't do 10, they do seven and they, and they stop. And they say, nobody's gonna know I didn't do 10. Seven is better than zero. Uh, seven is good enough. And I'm just going to do seven. And that's all I'm going to do. And nobody's going to know better. And I'm not going to get in trouble. And this is the way it goes. And she said, those kind of people are the losers in life. Because they never deliver what they're supposed to do. They always cut corners, and then they make excuses, and they somehow justify it. And the minute she said it, it was fascinating, because I would have these people who miss profit target, they miss their sales target every month, and they always got excuses that they're still great, even though they never make the number. So you say do 10, they do seven, and they say, well, it's good enough. It's better than nothing. And those are the worst salespeople that I have in my company. She said, that's group one. Group two are people, the coach says do 10, they do exactly 10. They do exactly what they're told to do. And she said, these people are winners. They'll win sometimes. They'll win sometimes, but not consistently, but they'll win from time to time. And she said, the third people are the champions. And those are people like me. Every time he asked me to do 10, I never did 10. I did 15. 
And that's why I won five gold medals because I was the only person in that gym that ever did more than was demanded of me. And then it hit me again. I've got a very few, my greatest employees in any company I've worked in or been the CEO of. There's those few employees that every time you ask them to do a number, they always beat the number. They just beat the number. They're just better and they over deliver. And these are your champions. And so when you bring in, and these are the people that win time after time after time. So you look at a guy here like Michael Phelps, covered in medals, Olympic medals, more Olympic golds than anyone in history. He's won more than most countries have in their lives, in their lifespan. I mean, just two days ago, the Philippines, a you know, country I love and I've been coaching for their Olympic team, they just won the first gold in the last 97 years. So, you know, and that's a country of 107 million people. So, you know, look at it. You've got a guy like Phelps. He's won more gold medals than most nations have ever won. Uh, pretty impressive performance. And that's the difference between a winner and champion. The champion does 15, the winner does 10. The winner wins occasionally, the champion wins time to time. So that's that the difference. The winner wins from time to time. Uh, if in the business context, they grow modestly, the champion wins time after time. And when they grow, they grow big. They don't grow 2%, 3%, they grow 20%, 30%. That's the difference between a winner and a champion. Now to put it into a sports context, let's take a look at boxing. Uh, you know, I was, I'm a former boxer, a sport that I've been involved with for a long time. Uh, here's two examples. Here's a winner. Now, you look at his picture and you say, I don't know who that is. The guy on the left, his name was Aaron Pryor. You can Google him. I was one of his uh, fitness trainers and weight training instructors uh, when he was going for the world welterweight title in 82 and 83. In 1982 and 83, he was named by Ring Magazine as the pound for pound greatest boxer in the world. He was boxer of the year in 1982. He won the world welterweight title. This is his championship fight. Uh, he won the title. And then he kind of went on a rampage of, of parties and drugs, and he never won again. And he died in his 50s of basically cocaine, over, you know, over usage of cocaine and other drugs. Uh, but there was a time in his life when he was at the top, he did win, he won one time. And he was a winner. But it was a brief, bright light shining light of when he won and then he never won again that's an i that's from a sports context a winner he was once the champion of the world but he never repeated it a champion would be this gentleman this is manny pacquiao and i uh after he won one of his fights uh you know when i got to the philippines in 2006 he was a world champion I left the Philippines in 2018. He was the world champion. It's 2021. He's the world champion. The guy's been the world champion for the last 15 years. He's the only boxer in history to win eight different weight divisions. You know, again, arguably the greatest boxer of all time. It's been, you know, since 2006, he's been a world champion. That's the difference. It's about consistency and about raising the standards of performance uh, everywhere around you. Now, how do these guys approach their work? Uh, it's a good question. And there was a study done in the 1980s of champions and athletics across the globe. This study was published in the US magazine, Sports Illustrated. I consider it one of the most definitive studies ever done on what makes people truly champions or what makes great people great. And they looked at great sports teams, the teams that win consistently. Uh, they looked at the, the, the Bayern Munichs and the Manchester Uniteds and, and teams like that, this, at that time, the Los Angeles Lakers, they looked at individuals, the people like a Roger Federer or a Rafael Nadal or a, a Novak Djokovic, all winning 20 Grand Slams. They didn't look at the guy who won one. They look at the guy that won 20. They look at the people like a Serena Williams. They look at these types of individuals and they studied the differences. And it was a group of psychologists and sociologists. And that study uh, was a landmark study because sports can certainly learn from business. I'm involved in the sports world. There's a lot of mistakes made. Money management can sometimes be a, a complete disaster. Sports can learn from business, but you know what? Business can learn from the sports. And that's the context here, which is 
What did they learn about sports champions that can be reapplied to business? And they came up with five fundamental differences between winners and champions. And all of these differences are 100% relevant to anything that you do in your life, from business to a hobby to uh, another an endeavor that you engage in, it can apply. And so let's go through these, these basically these five principles of separating winners and champions. The first principle is about the game that's played. Now, every sport and every business and everything in life, there's a game that you got to know how to play. I mean, everything in life. So if you take like my business as an example, there's a game. The game is come up with a good product, get it priced right, get it on the shelf, have good marketing and, you know, good things will happen to you. You know, consistent product, consistent quality, consistent availability, good marketing. That's, that's the game plan to win an FMCG. Every business has a game plan, a, a, a way to play the game. Every sport has a way to play the game. You know, you watch the, the Olympics are on right now. Watch the swimming. They all will do the same thing. They dive in, they stay underwater, they flip their legs a certain number of times. And, you know, watch all of that. They're, there's a, they're all running the same game plan. Now, what happens with this game plan is, is the winners play that game well. The losers don't even play the basic game well. The losers are completely out of it. The winners play the conventional game well. But what does the champion do? The champion completely changes the game to their advantage. They innovate. They come up with a new way of doing things and they change the rules of the game completely. That's what the champion does. Now, in a sports context, there's nobody better to learn this from and I learned from them. my old friend, Edwin Moses. Again, it probably ages me a bit uh, because he was back in the 70s and 80s, but he was considered one of the 50 greatest Olympians of all time. He ran a race called the 400 meter hurdles. This is Edwin and I, when we went to the World Cup together in South Africa in 2010. Uh, this is he and I at the UK-US match uh, in South Africa. He was a 400 meter runner. He was also a structural engineer and he used engineering principles to change his stride and to do something different in the hurdles that was against the conventional game. Now, everybody laughed at him, but then he basically rewrote the record book. He didn't lose a race for 10 years. It's considered the greatest streak in sports. He didn't lose for a decade, not one time. In 10 years, he never lost. It's amazing. It's amazing at a world-class level. And I'm gonna show you a short video that brings to life how he applied engineering principles to innovate and what he did then, now all the 400 meter hurdlers do. It's now, what he was innovating on is now the conventional game. And so let's take a look uh, at this video and enjoy the music and learn what did Edwin Moses do? I also apologize for the quality of the footage, but in 1976 Olympics, the camera quality was just awful. And so you'll see a big change between the 76 Olympics and the 84 Olympics in, in camera technology and film technology. You, you might be thinking, what about the 80 Olympics? Uh, you may recall the US boycotted the 80 Olympics because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and they, they were being held in Moscow. So he didn't get a chance to defend his title in the 80 Olympics because his country said, you're not going. So he had to wait eight years to defend his Olympic title. So let's take a look at this video.
Okay, so principle one is about innovation. There's a game to be played. The winners play it well. The champions completely innovate and change the game. Principle number two is about risk-taking. Now, the winners take some risks, but they're modest. And they will often do what's called acknowledging reality, which really irritates a lot of people, especially people like me, uh, you know, that are uh, that are like the, at the at leadership positions. And you know, we need people to go for it, not just to always hedge. And acknowledging reality is like this: you give a sales target to a team, and they say, "We're going to go for it, boss," but that big but, but. We got to acknowledge reality, boss. We're not going to make it. So we're going to go for it, but we're not going to make it. And they're always hedging things and always looking for ways out. And they're always looking for ways to not go for it. That's how the winners play it. What the champion does is, is they take huge risks and they say, we can actually do, it's not going to be easy and the odds are not high, but we're going to give it a try uh, in the pursuit of breakthrough for them. The word it's impossible is not even in their vocabulary. Now, I used to say it's impossible many times in my life until I met one guy. Uh, and that guy is my dear friend, Eric Weinmayer. Now, this is Eric and I at the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in Africa, right at almost 6,000 meters. And, you know, you're looking at this picture and you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, I know lots of people that have climbed Kilimanjaro. Okay, it's not a killer climb. It's not easy, but it's not really that hard. Yeah, that's probably true, but here's the issue. Eric is blind, 100% blind in both eyes. He's the only blind man to have climbed the seven summits, which is the tallest mountain on each continent. He's one of only 150 people to do all seven of those summits, and he's the only blind man to do it. And, you know, we set, and that during that trip, we set a world record. We got five people blind to the summit. Uh, I was part of the world record team and I was his guide for 10 days. Now, in 10 days on a mountain with someone in, in the tent together, you learn about them. And, and you know, I'll tell you an interesting day about him. We, we, we did a, the harder route up Kilimanjaro. There's, there's multiple routes. There's one uh, called the Coca-Cola route or the Marangu route. It's a bit easier. It's more hiking than climbing. Then there's a harder route called the Whiskey route or the Machame route. We did a modified Machame to, because we wanted to prove to people that blind people could do even the, high, the hard climb. And we had a TV crew with us from Japan and we wanted to make sure that uh, we didn't make this look easy, that everybody had respect for these, these blind climbers. And we were doing a free climb on a rock face and, and we were roped in and I was roped to him and then we, the ropes were locked in uh, onto the, the face of the wall. Now you think, well, when you fall, there's no problem. The rope catches you, but the fall hurts. I mean, when these ropes snap, when you fall five, six meters and then get stopped on a rope, it hurts. I've fallen many times. It doesn't feel good. You don't want to fall. And we're on this rock face and I'm supposed to help Eric. And the way I help Eric is I'm above him and I'm on the rock face and I'm supposed to kind of look down and yell out using a, a clock face. I would yell out to him where a handhold might be. And I would say like, Eric, reach to 10 o'clock or reach to two o'clock and you'll find a, a bigger rock to hold on to. And, you know, we were doing that and I was pretty scared. You know, I mean, I, I'm not the greatest climber in the world. I'm decent, but I'm not the greatest. And, and I, you know, for me, it's already hard, let alone I got to guide this blind guy up the, up, up the rock face. And a few times on the rock face, I'm there holding on. And I close my eyes to kind of see what his world's like. It is terrifying. I am scared to death. And I just can't believe this guy's doing this. I mean, everything's black and you're on a rock face and you can fall big time. And so that night we're in the tent and we'd had dinner and we're in the tent and there's nothing to do. You're not watching TV or you're not on your computer. There's no internet, there's nothing. You just talk, it's the old days. And I say to him, I say, I kind of ask you this, how do you do it? And his answer, this is number two, changed the rest of my life, changed me forever. He said, Jim, I'm a blind mountain climber, but so are you. We're all blind mountain climbers. Everybody on this call is a blind mountain climber. What does that mean? It means life is about reaching into the darkness in the hope 
the hope that you will find a higher handhold. Now, sometimes you don't find a higher handhold and you fall and you got to start over. But sometimes you, you grab a higher handhold and you pull yourself up higher. And he said, that's what life's all about, reaching in the darkness. And I realized like, why did I even take the job in Dubai? Why did I leave the comfort zone of, of Philippines? Because I wanted to reach into the darkness and see if I could grow and go higher. You can't grow if you don't reach into the darkness. And it was just so profound. And he said, so, you know, Jim, I'm really a blind mountain climber. But he said, you know, rhetorically, so are you and so is everybody else. And he goes on to say, there's only, you know, there's only three kinds of people in the world. And I started laughing because this was after I'd been with Nadia. I started laughing. He said, there's only three kinds of people in the world. He said, you'll see them on a mountain. He said, there's climbers. These are people that keep reaching into the darkness and going higher. He said, that's group one. Group two are, are campers. They get to a certain height and then they camp out and they say, I don't want to go any higher on the mountain. And he said, the third group are quitters. They turn around and go back down to the bottom. And I, again, I just laughed. He had a whole different way of explaining the three kinds of people, climbers, campers, and quitters. And that changed me forever. And one of the reasons I sit in Dubai today in a new company is at the age of 55, I still wanted to take risks and try new things and move to a country I'd never lived in, work for a company I'd never worked for, work for people I didn't know that well and take those risks. This is what life is about. You gotta reach into the darkness and you might fall, you might, but you also might get a higher handhold and pull yourself higher. And that's what it's all about. And that was learning from the great Eric Weinmayer, the only blind man to do the seven summits. The next principle, principle three, is about what happens after you win. So the winner wins, and like Aaron Pryor in the boxing example I gave you, they let off the gas and they say, I did it, I won, I finished. They, they, they relax and they relish their victory. The champion never forgets the Sisyphus principle of life. What is the Sisyphus principle of life? It starts in Greek mythology. Sisyphus in Greek mythology was, was banished by the gods as punishment for his crimes to roll a big stone up to the top of the hill every day. At night, the stone would roll back to the bottom. And then the next day, Sisyphus had to push the same stone up the same mountain again. At night, it would come back down and he was banished to a life of rolling the same stone up the same hill over and over again. Now, whether we like it or not, we are all Sisyphus. What this means is, is you gotta re-earn your pay every day. You can't live on the past and you can't live on what you did. And I see people do this all the time. When you ask people, ask me the question, you know, I'm 58 years old now. You ask the question, why do these guys in their fifties, they have these amazing careers and then they get fired. There's only typically two explanations for that. Explanation one is a sex scandal. Okay, like the CEO of McDonald's is fired for, you know, an illicit affair with an employee, the CEO of Boeing, the same thing, they, they're getting fired for dumb decisions, uh, you know, and, and making mistakes on ethics. But that's not the biggest reason. The biggest reason is the Sisyphus principle, because the 50 year old guy, what does he do? He says, hey, I was a superstar once. I was great. I can live off that. I was a star in my other company. And they never realized in the new company, nobody gives a damn whether you are a star or not. You got to earn it today. You got to re-earn your pay. And athletes understand the Sisyphus principle better than anybody. So I'm in the Philippines. I'm the CEO of PNG. I, I go and visit this distributor down in the south, down in Davao, and the distributor is not doing a good job. And by after two days with this guy, I come to the conclusion we got to fire him and give it to another distributor. They're just not hungry anymore. And so we send the guy a termination letter and he gets the letter and he blows up and he calls me up and he says, I'm coming to Manila. I want to see you. I said, sure, you're welcome to come. So he shows up in my office in Manila, you know, a few days later, or a week later. And he says, I, I just want to show you some things. And I said, okay. And he opens up his briefcase and he takes out this plaque that was in a frame and it had been hanging on the wall, obviously in his office. And it said, PNG distributor of the year, 1992. 
I said, congratulations, you won that award. And he said, well, wait a minute, there's more. And he reaches into his briefcase and he takes out the, almost the same certificate. And it says P&G Distributor of the Year 1998. And he said, I'm two-time Distributor of the Year in Procter & Gamble. How can you fire me? And I looked at him and I said, it's very clear you've never played a competitive sport in your life. This was 10 and 16 years ago. You want to live off of an award you won a decade ago? It's 2008, pal. You got to re-earn it every day. I mean, let's take a Usain Bolt. Let's take sports. Let's take sports. Let's take football. Who won more World Cups for Brazil than anybody else? Pele. If I play this logic out, Pele should go to the Brazilian team and say, hey, you should play me. I know I'm 85 years old, but you should put me on the team. You owe me because... I won four World Cups for you. Or Usain Bolt, who's not in these Olympics. This is the first Olympics since 2004. There's no Usain Bolt. He, he goes to the Olympic Committee and says, hey, I won 2008. I won 2012. I won 2016. So you know what? For Tokyo, just give me the gold medal. I earned it because I won the last three. What would you say to him? You would laugh. You would say, no way, pal. You got to rerun your race. You got to re-earn it. But I'll be damned if we don't have people in business that completely forget this all the time and they think they can live off the past and tell me stories about how great they were when they worked for company X. I don't care how great you were. You got to earn it today. And that's the Sisyphus principle. Putting this into very simple words that bring it to life. Success is never owned, it's rented. And the rent is due every day. If you, on this call, if you have an attitude that every morning when you wake up, you got to re-earn your pay, you're going to have one amazing career. You're going to have a mind-blowing career because you'll never let up. And this is the secret. I still wake up every day. I've gone 36 years in business. I'm, I've been in business longer than most of my people have been alive and all kinds of awards and all kinds of plaques and all kinds of CEO of the year and blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares. It's what are you gonna deliver today? If every day when you wake up, you say, I gotta re-earn my pay, you're gonna have one amazing career. But the day you start thinking there's a credit system and you can live off the past, you're gonna get fired. You're gonna get fired eventually because there is no credit system in life. There's none. You got to re-earn it. I have to wake up every morning with my wife and be a great husband to her every day. I can't say, I was a good husband 10 years ago. You cut me a break. I'm allowed to be mean to you now. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You got to re-earn this every day. Next principle uh, comes from one of the greatest Filipino athletes that you've never heard of, a man by the name of Piangnepa Macheno. You haven't heard of him because his sport is bowling, rolling the ball down and hitting the pins. Uh, he holds many world records, including the only man to win a world championship in four different decades. He won his first world title in 77, then he won in 86, then he won in 99, and then he won in 2004. He won over a 40-year period world titles in bowling. And I learned a very valuable lesson from Piang, which is this. When it comes to the fundamentals, Every job and every, everything you do in life has fundamentals. The winners are good at the fundamentals. The losers don't even have the fundamentals. Fundamentals, for example, in the world of sports, the key fundamental is fitness. No matter what the sport, fitness is important. Now, it's important to varying degrees, but you got to be fit. So the winner is going to have good fundamentals, but the champion will master the fundamentals. And let's go back to this bowler. Now, you may not even be thinking fitness is important to bowling, but it is. It's still a sport and fitness matters. So let's look at this fundamental of fitness. Here's an article from 1994, right before the Asian Games or the ASEAN. This is like the Olympics for Asia, uh, which the UAE and all of our countries in this region compete in. The title of the headline says 28 ASEAN bets are out of shape. That means that 28 people on the national team across all sports. This could be basketball, this could be track, this could be weightlifting, this could be uh, you know, swimming, 
all these sports, you got 28 people are rated out of shape. And the taxpayers of the Philippines are going to pay to send them to these Asian championships. That's kind of embarrassing. But you look at the cutout. The cutout says the medical staff, however, gave three-time World Cup champion Pine Nepomuceno the highest overall rating. For a sport that doesn't require as much stamina and power as other sports, Pine passed all the tests remarkably, said Reyes. So let me get this straight. On the Philippine national team, going to the Asian Games, across all sports, from marathon running to weightlifting to everything, the best fit athlete was the bowler. A bowler was their most fittest athlete. Now, that's not to poke fingers at the other athletes, but it's to say how much this guy mastered his sport. Now, on the anniversary of his last World Cup title, when he was 57 years old, because Pine's now 63, uh, when he was 57 years old, they uh, wanted to do a photo shoot with him with the Guinness Book of World Records and his, his last World Cup title in his hand. And, you know, the photographers were stunned. And here's the picture they took of him, a 57-year-old man bowler who's still competing and still in training. That's a 57-year-old bowler with a six-pack, with muscle, taking care of himself. This is why the guy won for 40 years, because he mastered the fundamentals. Fundamentals are in every job, whether it's effective communication, effective presentation, great writing, financial analysis, mastering marketing skills, mastering selling technique, mastering persuasive selling format. These are all fundamentals. The winners are good. The champions master those fundamentals. What you have to do is ask yourself, what are the fundamentals of my job? What are the fundamentals? And then become the best at them. Become the best. This is what separates the winner from the champion. And the final principle has been rated by the people that did the study is the most important thing of all. And it's this whole concept of mental state about how you view the world. Now the winner will get into the final. So let's take the Wimbledon final or the World Cup final. And they'll say, they, they say to the TV cameras, I'm so happy to be here. I don't care what, I'm, I'm guaranteed a silver medal. I don't care what happens tomorrow. Uh, I'm just an honored to make the final. You know, I get to call myself one of the finalists in history. I'm so happy and I'm happy to be here and I don't really care how it ends up. I'm still gonna get a silver medal no matter what. These people rarely win the gold. The champion has a whole different mindset. They have what's called sense of the historic. It's a recognition of the big moments in your life when you don't fail when you have to be perfect. Now, I'm not perfect. Nobody in this call is perfect, but we are capable of brief moments of, of perfection. We are capable of doing things perfectly when we want to, when we really have to. And what the champion does is they say, this is the final of Wimbledon. I may never get here again. I can't count on next year. I might be in a car wreck and, and get injured and never play again. I can't count on next year. I must win now. And I have to play the match of my life tomorrow because I can't count on another chance at this. And so that gold medal is mine. And that's what's called sense for the historic. It's a recognition of the greatest moments in your life. And this can be many things. For me, as an example, it was the interview to get the job at Fine. They were looking for a board member and there was like 10 people they were looking at. And here I am, not even from the region. You know, I, my Arabic is awful. It's even non-existent. And, and they're gonna interview me for this job. And I love the region and I wanna be connected to the region. So what do I do? I told my wife, I'm not losing this. I studied fine for hours, 100 hours of study. I memorized everything about the company, everything about the family, everything about the chairman. I memorized and knew the company inside and out. When I went in that interview, they were blown away by my knowledge of the company. And they interviewed all the other candidates and then they called and they said, you're our pick. That's sense for the historic. I don't spend a hundred hours investing in every interview, but when I want the job that bad, I spend a hundred hours. Sense of the historic is recognizing the biggest moments, biggest projects in your life, biggest challenges in your life, and on those, you don't miss.
you're perfect. Now, I learned this from someone I've known since he was 13 years old, the great Michael Johnson. Uh, this is he and I at a coaching clinic in Poland the year that he retired from sport uh, and running the 200 and 400 meters. Now, you may remember Michael uh, for these kind of pictures. He was the guy in the 96 Olympics in Atlanta that wore the gold shoes. And the gold shoes was a big point of controversy because he obviously wore them before he won gold. And, uh, you know, that was a big point of contention. And when he was in Poland, I had him come and speak to my team at PNG. And one of my people asked a question, uh, you know, it's a very classic question. They put their hand up and they say, Mr. Johnson, can I ask you a question? Why did you wear the gold shoes? Because if you lose, you would look so stupid and the whole world would laugh at you for being arrogant. His answer is the third and final time in this presentation, I'm gonna say this, it changed the rest of my life. It was that profound. And here was a guy, I was a guy, I was the CEO of PNG Poland. I used to lay awake at night all the time in stress. What happens if I miss my number? Am I gonna get fired? I would worry all the time, I'm gonna get fired about it. And I never understood what Johnson understood. And here's what his answer was to that person. He said, that's the problem with the world. People always worry about what if, when that worry doesn't help them. He says, there is no, sometimes in life, there is no plan B. Plan B sucks. Plan B sucks. There's only plan A. He said, I made a decision to wear the gold shoes. I made a decision to spend all my energy training harder than everybody else in the world. I made a decision to make sure I went there to win. And if I win, I win. If I lose, I will deal with that later, but I'm not gonna worry about now. And then he looked at the guy and he said, if I lay in bed every night and worry, if I wear the shoes and then I lose and I look stupid, does that worry help me win? No, of course it doesn't help you win. That worry does nothing to promote your objective of winning. He said, so I spent all my energy on what I had to do to win. And I thought about myself laying in bed all the time, worrying, losing sleep over if I miss, I'm going to get fired. But that worry doesn't help me make my number. What I should do is spend all my energy making the number. And the way he explained it, it, it I put it into a, a little parallelogram. <clears throat> you start with the top left-hand corner. Do you have a problem? Okay, let's go up here. Do you have a problem? Now, if the answer is no, then stop worrying. If the answer is yes, then ask yourself, can you do something about it? If you can, then don't worry. If you can't, then don't worry. The point is stop the plan B stuff and stop worrying all the time. Put all your energy into what you must do to achieve your objective. That's where the energy goes, not to wasteful worrying. Now, what happened in the Olympic games in 96? He went for something no man had ever done in the Olympics to run the 200 meters, which is half a lap, and then to run the 400 meters, which is a full lap. These typically these races don't go together and nobody really runs both. He tried to do a double that has never been done in Olympic history. What happened in those 96 Olympic games? Let's take a look at a short video that shows what happened in the 96 Olympics in the 200 meter and in the 400 meter half lap, full lap. Olympic 400 meter goal. 
Okay, what happened? Uh, two races, two gold medals, two Olympic records, one world record. Uh, he didn't have a plan B. He went for plan A. Uh, the interesting thing about Johnson, I, I coached against him. I worked with him when he was 13 years old and the U.S. Junior National Team. Uh, my athlete, Clinton Davis, even beat him in the U.S. 200-meter final uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, under-18 championships. I've seen him lose a lot of races. But sense for the historic doesn't mean you never lose. Sense of historic means you know the great moments. Now, for a track and field athlete, those great moments are Olympics and world championships. Everything else is secondary. He's lost a lot of races. But in the Olympics and the world championships, he ran 13 times for the medal, 13 golds. He never lost an Olympic final or a world championship final over a 15-year career. That is sense for the historic, and that's recognizing the great moments. All of us on this call, we have projects on our project list. Some of them are crucial to the company, and they're, these are make or break projects. Those are the sense of the historic projects. You don't miss. You don't miss. For no excuses, no nothing, you don't miss. Know the great moments in your life, recognize them, and in those moments, you deliver. So to close this, my advice to you is seize the day, carpe diem, Latin, seize the day. You know, go for it, folks. Life is short. You know, yesterday I was a 21-year-old a father holding my son in my arms. Today, he's got three kids. I'm 58. I'm at the end of my career. <laughs> Life goes by quick. Put your gold shoes on and go for it. Stop all the plan B folk over-focused. Put together a plan A, strap on your gold shoes and go for it. Because honestly, you know, with the way the world is now and the opportunities for people, there's not enough great people. Simple as that. You think there are, they're not. There's not enough people that really want it bad enough. If you want it bad enough, now is your time. That's it. I hope that was helpful. I hope it's brought perspective. I will turn it back over to Sharad uh, and, you know, we can go into a Q&A and I can stay extra as required. I apologize if I went over for five or 10 minutes, but Thank you very much for your time and attention. Great, uh, James, uh, thank you. Uh, this has been life-changing and I know I'm speaking for the participants as well. We have a few questions and I'm going to shoot them right away. Uh, the first one is from Faiza and she says, what advice do you have for a mother who is going back to work but has to juggle toddlers, family life, social life, etc." How can we stay focused in our career? What's your advice, James? Well, I think um, uh, there's a couple of things. First is, is I would look for organizations that support moms. Uh, not all do. Uh, I, you know, I'm a firm believer. In fact, uh, you know, in my time in VAT, I had once the uh, human resources people came to me and they said, we've been doing like a demographic research and we don't, we want to ask you something. Uh, we've noticed a funny number and we wanted to ask you. And 
I said, okay, what is it? And they said, well, 16% of your company are single moms. And I said, oh, I never really thought about it, but I guess it does make sense because you know what? The heroes in society are single moms because they have no help. They have no support. They have to be the mom and the dad. They have to, they have to bring in the money. They got to manage everything at home. They got these, these people are superheroes. And even now in, in fine hygienic holding, I have a whole gang of single moms in the company who are stars. And you know why they get hired? Because they're tougher and more motivated than other people. And you know, I can coach a lot of things in business. I can coach you how to, how to sell, how to look at advertising, how to do analysis. I can teach all that stuff. But the one thing I can't teach is desire. Desire has got to come from your own belly. And if you've got desire, then you are going to be, have a terrific career. So the first thing I would do if I'm a working mom is you're a hero. Go to companies that recognize that. And not all companies do. The, the second thing is, is what you have to do is, is I'm a big believer in the five finger role theory in life. You can only do five roles well. Now the average human has 20 to 22 roles. What's a role? A role for me, let's take it as an example. I'm an uncle, that's a role. I'm a nephew, I'm a cousin, I'm a father, I'm a husband, okay? I'm also a business executive, I'm a fitness practitioner, I'm a track coach. Yeah, you know, you go on, you got 20 roles. You have 20, I have 20. That's not the issue. The issue is you can only do five well. So now you have a role as a mom. That's one of your top five roles. You want to go back to work. Work has to be a top five role. And you may have to drop other things in your life. And let me give you an example. I don't, if I name my top five roles today, it's husband, father, CEO, fitness practitioner, and coach, coaching and philanthropy. That's all I do. Now you say, well, what about your parents? My parents are dead. What about your brothers and sisters? You know what? I'm really not that good of a brother. I don't go back for every wedding. I don't go back for every single thing. You know what? I can't do it all. And, and I got my own kids. I got my wife. I got the important, more important things. I can't be the most amazing brother in life. This is where people mess up is they never drop anything. When you become a new mother or a new father, you got to drop something. You can't, it's unrealistic to say, I'm going to be a mom and dad. And I'm going to keep everything in my life. You can't do that. You have to make choices. And life is about picking roles. And so what I would do is, is I would go back to work with pride at what you're trying to do. I would go to a company that is going to welcome you. And there are different companies out there. You know, we had this, I had this young, and it's a terrible story, but I'm going to tell it here in Dubai. I had this woman working for me and, you know, she's, she's pregnant and early pregnancy. She told us we were fine. And she gets this head on her call one day for this new job at this new company in Dubai. And it's like double her pay now out of nowhere. Now we offered her to give her a raise now, but I can't double her pay. I mean, I, I have to look at how I treat the whole organization. So, so I said, you know, we told her, look, be careful. You know, the environments are different. There's more than money. And she's like, no, no, no. I really want to go in. You know, I want to do this. I want to take a chance. You know, she saw the money and she was, you know, going for it. She quit, resigned. She went to the company and, you know, and, and we paid her like her month and all that stuff. So she took like a month off. So when she showed up at the company, she's like, I guess I should tell them I'm pregnant. So on her first day in this new company, big multinational here in Dubai, she goes in and says, I, I need to just advise you guys I'm pregnant. And her boss says, oh, I, we didn't know that. Um, uh, let's not go through with this. You're fired. She didn't even work for an hour. That was the culture. You get pregnant, we're not interested. Now, honestly, she should have done a better job and done her homework, interviewed people from the company, interviewed women. You know, the world, the, the, the street has a complete view on all these companies. Go to companies that support you. And then when you go, be very clear on your choices. And, and then the last advice I have for you, if you ever have to pick between baby and work, you better pick the baby. Right. Uh, James, better pick I... the baby. You better pick the baby every time. If, you, if you're really down to this choice, family, job, you go family on the big moments on the big moments in life. You don't miss the school play. 
You don't miss the parent-teacher conferences. You don't miss when she's playing on the school soccer team. You don't miss this stuff. She needs to look in the stands and see mom out there. And you know what? Despite being a CEO, I never missed a single school event of any of my kids. I was there for every school play, every performance, every awful violin performance. Every time they ran on the track team or they played on the soccer team, I went to the games. I was the only father there sometimes. And you know what? I work hard in my job and I work late at night and I'm up at 5 a.m. sometimes working. I'm allowed to go to a soccer game in the middle of the day. And so go to a company that will support you in being a mom and then everything will work out. Okay, James. So we have a lot of questions, but I'm just going to take two more quick ones. Uh, you talked about having a plan A, right? And Chandra Khan wants to know, in business, you've got to have a plan B and a plan C. What do you say? I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. And I don't, oftentimes we don't have a plan B because when you have a plan B, it creates people a fallback. You sometimes you got to make plan A work. And I've had multiple cases in our company where there was no plan B. There's only plan A and we have to make plan A work and failure is not an option. Right. You know, that, that, let me, let me get, let me bring sense to the historic delight. All of you on this call that have kids and you have young kids, have you ever crossed the street with your young child in heavy traffic? Uh, and you know that this is kind of a risky thing and you got, you got to make sure you get your kid across the street without getting hit by a car. All of us will say yes. Now, the next question I ask is, have any of you had your child get hit by the car? The answer is no. You know why? Sense for the historic. You recognize that crossing the street is dangerous and you're going to hold your kid's hand tight. You're going to grip their hand so tight they can't get away. And then you're going to cross that street. You're going to check five times and you're going to cross that street without getting hit. You don't have a plan B. You don't say, oh, my plan B is if I get, if my daughter gets hit, I'll have the ambulance on speed dial. There is no plan B. Plan, there's plan A. I'm going to cross the street with my little baby girl. She's four years old. And we're going to get across that street. And we're not going to get hit by a truck. Why can't that we do it in life all the time that without a plan B? Why do we have to have a plan B on everything business now? Sometimes you have a fallback, but not always. To say you always have to have a plan B and plan C, I don't buy that for one second. I have never run a company like that. I've never worked for a great leader that did that. Sometimes you have to deliver the goods and failure is not an option. And that's just right. the way it goes. And to acknowledge that you have a plan B is to acknowledge that you're ready to fail. And sometimes that's not an option. Just right. like crossing the street with my child, I'm not gonna let my child get killed by a car. It's not gonna happen. It's not going to happen. So you plan for success. And that's what Johnson's talking about. It's not on every occasion in life, but it's on sometimes the, the big ones and the most important ones. Right. James, next one is not a question, but it's a comment from somebody you might know. His name is Donatus Oduopa. And he says, James, you may not know me. I listened to you while you were in the Nigerian bottling company. Today, I'm a CEO and I'm a champion. Thank you. That's, uh, that's great on the chat session. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm very, that's wonderful to hear. And, you know, thank you for remembering my days at, at Nigerian bottling company, which was uh, nothing but a fabulous time in my, in my life. And, you know, will always be uh, a huge part of me is my time in, in Nigeria with the, uh, with some amazing people. So thank you. Great. Um, there are a lot of thank yous uh, on the chat board, uh, James. I want to, echo those to you. It's been truly inspiring, game-changing, life-changing. And uh, I want to thank our audience uh, for investing their 60 plus minutes with us. Before I sign off a little bit on uh, the housekeeping, uh, we have another webinar on 30th July, two days from now. It's called Today is the Face of Tomorrow. And we have an amazing speaker uh, this time one, again, I would say. It's Dr. Elizabeth Sartoris, who's actually coming in all the way from Hawaii. So our webinar is 7 a.m. Dubai time, and it's one that you should not miss. The next webinar after that is on 3rd August next week, and it's about the evolving workplace and how you can empower a hybrid workforce. 
and very relevant in post-COVID times. Encourage you again to attend this. You have to go to onlywebinars.com to register and join us. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on the other side. And once again, thank you, James. Truly inspirational, loved it, and uh, look forward to interacting with you again in the future. So I want to okay. say bye to our audience and bye to James. Stay safe, all of you, and we'll see you on the other side. Bye for now. Okay, thank you all very much. And if you ever need anything, just give me a shout. Will do. Thanks, James.